Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is which is born of the flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one who has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as, a, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Please take a moment and reflect on God's word. We're in a series called Conversations with Jesus, and a very intriguing conversation. But it's helpful to sort of get the flow of what's happening here in John's gospel, John begins with a big question and a big invitation in John 1.1. So right away, Jesus in the first chapter offers a big question and then a big invitation. Uh, These two disciples have been following John the Baptist. This is the forerunner of Jesus. And John the Baptist points out Jesus as the Messiah And so they're intrigued by Jesus, and they start following after Jesus. And when I mean they follow after Jesus, I mean literally walking right behind Jesus. And at some point in this little walk behind, Jesus turns around, and he asks the big question, what are you seeking? That's a big question. I wonder if you know what the answer to that question is in your own heart. Really, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What are you hoping is going to happen for you? What, what's, what's the thing that's going to fill that hole in your heart? What would you say that is? That's the question Jesus is asking. He's not just saying, hey, who you, who you just happen to be following after? He's trying to ask a much bigger question about what is it they really want out of life? These two men are seeking to find out more about Jesus. Where, where do you live? So Jesus offers a big invitation. Come and see. Come and see. I love that. It's not a slick presentation. It's not like getting sold a timeshare. It's not Jesus shifting into preacher voice. Well, now, oh, they're ready. They're ready. I got to put my preacher voice on and I can really sort of reel them in. No, it's just a, it's a very simple invitation. 
It's a big invitation. Just come and see. I mean, I'll let you decide for yourself. You just walk behind, walk with me, walk, walk around me. You just, you find out for yourself. I, I'm not going to need to do anything. If you just would walk around me, you'll see. You'll see. It's an invitation for these disciples. It's an invitation for you this morning. So we, we want, to, want to think, what's, what's the answer to the big question? What are we seeking? And then are we really wanting to come and see who Jesus is? And John, the writer of the gospel, he wants us to see who Jesus is. His whole purpose is to take somebody from John 1 to the end of the book and say, I want you to see who Jesus is. So in quick succession, he gives you three little encounters with totally different kinds of people and how they view Jesus and how Jesus intersects with their life. First, in chapter 3, Nicodemus. That's what we're going to look at this morning. In chapter 4, the pretty well-known story of the woman at the well. And then chapter 5, this paralyzed man who's at the pool trying to get into one of the pools. So John immediately is saying, hey, if you're going to walk with Jesus, come and see and come and see how he intersects these three different types of people. First, we have Nicodemus. Nicodemus is part of a select group. He's in the elite class. He's a religious conservative. He's, he's watched his country go on a downward slide. The Roman Empire has invaded Israel, and with it, they brought all these pagan practices. And this once proud country that followed after God is now soaking up this secular slide And the Pharisees are the ones who are trying to stand against the tide as much as they can to say, to call their people back to say, here's the truth about God, follow in this direction. And I believe that they probably had a good intention. But somewhere along the way, their love for the law eclipsed their love for God. So now when you run into Pharisees, it's just, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. And there was no grace. There was no sense of grace coming out of them or no sense of compassion. It was just judgment. Hey, you got to to stay in the lane. You got to do these things and you can't do these things. They become externally focused and they, they lose sight of a need for internal cleanliness. You might remember when Jesus encounters one of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Oh, man. Imagine, imagine being a Pharisee who's calling out the culture to say, you all are hypocritical. Now Jesus is looking and saying, no, no, you're hypocritical. You, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead man's bones. See, you're real good at trying to keep the outside together or telling other people how they should keep their outside together. You can really identify the problems in the other people, but you've lost sight somehow of seeing the sin in your own heart, in your own soul. When Jesus says this in Matthew 23, this is fighting words. And of course, Jesus ends up on a cross just a few chapters later. Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. He was also, a, it says, verse 1, the ruler, a ruler of the Jews. He's in a group called the Sanhedrin. He's not just religiously powerful, he's politically powerful. He's well-connected. 
He's one of 70 men who formed this powerful political body in Israel. And so when, when in verse 1 of chapter 3, John introduces us to a very elite man. He's in the top tier of the religious field and the political power field. John chapter 4, the woman in the well. If you picture Nicodemus at the top of the tier, this woman, she's at the bottom of the tier. She's a Samaritan. She's religiously liberal. She's one of the ones who's caved in. I mean, she's religious, but she's sort of soaking up all this secular culture, and she's kind of piecing her religion together. She's got some God stuff in her, in her, in her religion, and then she's got some worldly stuff in her religion. I don't know if you know anybody like that. She's a morally liberal. She's been married five times. She's currently living with a man who's not her husband. This is a woman who would have been detested by Nicodemus. She's at the very opposite end of the scale. And then John chapter 5, the paralyzed man, if the, if the Pharisees at the top of the scale and the woman at the well is at the bottom of the scale, this guy's he's not on the scale. He's, he just doesn't even register in life. He's just a throwaway life. He's like trash on the side of the road. This man's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's outside a gate in Jerusalem. He lives by this pool or several pools that there was a superstition that if it bubbled up and you kind of jumped in, you got a healing. So he's not religious, but he is superstitious. So in quick succession, Jesus encounters these three different people. It's, it's a way of John saying, everyone needs Jesus. I mean, what, wherever you are on the scale, all these people need Jesus. And everyone has access to Jesus. This is what's so great. It's not just everyone needs Jesus. Everyone has the same kind of access to Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're moral or you're a mess. It doesn't matter, it matters, it matter if you're religious or superstitious. It doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal. It doesn't matter if you're powerful, a prostitute, or you're poor. All those people need Jesus. All those people have access to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to focus in on just this one character, Nicodemus, this powerful, politically connected person. And I love this conversation, and I want you to love it too. So I want to, I want to just sort of walk through it, make some observations and, and some applications. Verse 2, interestingly, John, I think, is an artist and not just a writer, includes this little detail. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. By night. And I think he did come at night. But I think John has two purposes here. It's not just that Nicodemus is coming in the dark. Nicodemus is in the dark. It, throughout the Gospel of John, darkness and light are these uh, countermeasures all through the, the Gospel. And he's saying, I believe, hey, this man, he's in the dark. He, he may have just finished dinner and decided to stop and see Jesus, but, but I, Nicodemus is coming out of the darkness, and he's going to meet Jesus, who is the light of the world. And notice then Nicodemus initiates the conversation. Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. See, nobody can do these signs. Nicodemus has seen Jesus do some things unless God is with him. 
We know. We, we know. We're, we're the religious class. We're the elite class. We're the powerful class. We know stuff. And then Jesus responds, I think, in a very unusual way, very puzzling. Verse 3, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, if you're just reading this, you're like, what's, what? I mean, this doesn't even make any sense, which is what Nicodemus thinks. This doesn't make any sense. And what I think Jesus is doing here is he's trying to reorient Nicodemus. See, when Nicodemus walks in the room, everybody knows he's in the room. When Nicodemus walks in the room and he starts talking, everyone stops talking and listens to him. Nicodemus, when he walks in the room, he's the most powerful person in the room. He's the most well-connected person in the room. He's the smartest religious person in the room. But when he walks into this room, he's not any of those things. But he doesn't realize it yet. And, and I think Jesus is trying to be sympathetic to, to Nicodemus. He's trying to say, Nicodemus, you're in, a, you're, you're in the wrong orbit, buddy. And I'm going to try to reorient you to know that I'm that person now. So naturally, Nicodemus enters the room and he tries to bring Jesus up to speed about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Hey, Jesus, here's stuff we know about you. I mean, you think Jesus is like, wow, let me take some notes. Thank you, Nicodemus, for telling me about me. That's so awesome. <laughs> I think Jesus had to have some kind of smile on his face. To which Jesus responds, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth. This is amen and amen. This is, this is making Nicodemus stand up. He's going to get an amen statement from Jesus. I mean, Jesus, when he's going to say something you want to listen to, he says, amen first. You know, when, when I preach and you say, that's right, you say amen at the end, but Jesus is amening himself before he even makes his statement. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I think this is the way of Jesus saying, Nicodemus, I know you're used to informing people of what the truth is, but before you stick your other foot in your mouth, before you start telling the creator of the universe everything that you know, let me help you out. You have no idea what you're talking about. He's just trying to bring him out of his orbit and into his. See, Nicodemus, you can't even see anything. You, you really are in your heart. You're in the dark. And this is, this is maybe the most critical place to start for every human heart. See, Nicodemus has this built-in behavior system that feels compelled to tell God what they know. And you might say, well, that's, that's always the case for people who are sort of religiously powerful or politically connected. They, they always walk in the room and feel like they need to tell, tell God what, what's right, what's wrong. But it's not limited to Nicodemus. And you see it because if you read chapter 4 and chapter 5, it's the exact same thing the woman at the well and the paralyzed man is doing. Every single person feels like they should inform God about God. The woman at the well, this is amazing. And again, I wish I could just have Jesus' face. She leans into Jesus and says, hey, you know what? I know about the Messiah. <laughs> really? Well, let me start taking notes about what you know about the Messiah. Imagine this woman telling the Messiah about the Messiah. 
She feels some built-in compulsion to say, hey, this is what we know. Let's make what we know the starting point. And Jesus comes to the paralyzed man. He asks him, and he wants to get well. Hey, Jesus, here's what I know. If the pool bubbles up and you get in, you get well. He's informing the great physician about how he's going to get well. It just seems to be this built-in system for Nicodemus, the woman, the paralyzed man, and maybe you and me. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, let me help you out. What matters is what I know, not what you know. It doesn't matter if you're a Ph.D., or poor. It doesn't matter if you're powerful, paralyzed. I'm, I'm not going to begin, Jesus is saying, I'm not beginning any of my discussions about the kingdom of God with what you know. I'm going to start my discussions about the kingdom of God with what I know and what I see. And before you can really see Jesus, you have to see this. Because if you're always going to start and say, I need to inform God about things here first. Gonna have a hard time seeing who Jesus is. You can tell Jesus throws Nicodemus for a loop here because he has this kind of odd conversations from really verse 2 down to verse 10. And let me just summarize it in this way because if you read it, it seems a little bit wooden. And I want to tell you how I think it actually unfolds. In verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, here's what I know. And then in verse 3, Christ responds, Nicodemus, you don't know anything until you're born again. You can't actually see anything. And then in verse 4, Nicodemus says, Jesus, you know, I think you missed the sex ed class because it doesn't work that way. I don't think there's any possibility that can work. So he's confused And then Jesus, in these few verses, five through eight, he says, Nicodemus, I'm trying to tell you about spiritual rebirth, not just a physical rebirth. I'm trying to tell you how the spirit works. And then in verse nine, Nicodemus says to Jesus, you know, I don't understand what you're talking about. He says this, how can these things be? I mean, he's just like, "I I don't get it. In verse 10, then Jesus says, well, I thought you were the smartest guy in the room. I mean, you're a Pharisee. I mean, if anyone should know what I'm talking about in terms of spiritual issues, it's got to be you, Nicodemus, because you're the smartest guy in the room. Verse 5, he says to Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. You have to be born again. Jesus isn't giving some lecture like to an OBGYN. This is something else. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's, it's also something that Nicodemus should have known. You see, Jesus has a kind of a surprised conversation like, well, gosh, you, you of all people, you should know what I'm talking about because in Ezekiel 36, you, you know this passage, Nicodemus. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to remove that heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give my spirit to you so then you can be careful to live out my laws. 
I'm going to change your insides so that your outside begin to transform. That's what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. It's really the same thing Ezekiel has been telling you. You're going to be born of the Spirit. Something's going to happen inside you, and then you're going to follow my decrees. Something's going to happen outside of you. But Nicodemus had lost focus somehow, and it was all about outside. And it must have been truly shocking to Nicodemus that Jesus is challenging his moral merit badges to get him into heaven. He's just tearing those moral badges off Nicodemus's chest. You know, Jesus doesn't say, well, Nicodemus, I mean, you're halfway home, bud got a lot of good things going for you. Now all you need is the second half, this inside half. No, Jesus says to poor, confused Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're completely in the dark. Nothing you have done counts. What if you think that? Nothing you have done counts towards your spiritual rebirth. Think about how big of a pill that's to swallow for Nicodemus. Honestly, it feels like a big pill to me. I mean, nothing, nothing I have done counts towards my spiritual rebirth. That's right, Paul. Nothing. It's all going to be grace. And I want to say, But yeah, but on the front of your bulletin is this very interesting little epitaph by a guy named John Berridge. He's a vicar or a pastor in England, and he has this on his tombstone. And he says, I've been called to wait on him above. And then he asks a series of of questions or a question and makes some comments. Reader, art thou born again? I mean, imagine you're standing there. Art thou born again? Then he gives you a tiny little testimony. I was was born, uh, no salvation without new birth. I was born in sin, February 16, 17. I remained ignorant of my fallen state until 1730, so he's 14 years old. Then notice this critical line, this Nicodemus line. Lived proudly on faith and works for salvation from set till 1754. Till I was 38 years old, it was me and Jesus getting me, me into heaven. While he still believed that, 1755, he became a pastor. Imagine that. A year later, beautiful, fled to Jesus alone for refuge. See, I wonder if you've done that this morning. You you could have been somebody who's a pastor and you've yet to flee to Jesus alone for your salvation. Fell asleep in Christ, 1793. The reason Nicodemus is in the dark is because he's looking towards himself and not towards Jesus. And for Nicodemus to really see Jesus, and this may be a critical line for some of you this morning, you're going to have to repent of all the bad reasons you did good things. In order for you to really see Jesus, 
you're going to have to repent of all the bad self-interested things you did to, to get all the good things. And just in case Nicodemus doesn't get it, I love this about Jesus. He's such a great teacher. He's talking to him in a lecture style, and he says, okay, maybe you're not going to get the lecture. Let's give you a picture. And because I'm not a great student, I always love the picture, you know? Somebody hand me the book. I'm looking, how many pictures are in the book? Because that's how I learn. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you the lecture, and then I'm going to give you a picture. It's a very vivid picture, and Nicodemus surely would have been very... Uh, aware of this picture, and it comes from Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21, God had saved the people from this terrible sin and or this terrible slave and slavery and oppression. And he brings them out into the desert, and he's providing light for them. He's providing a cloud for them at night. He's providing rocks that give water. He's providing manna from heaven. He's providing all kinds of things, but it's just not enough for them. They just are complainers. This isn't what we wanted. We wanted something else. And they're just compl constantly complaining. And so God, in his, his frustration and his reorientation, he actually sends a plague of venomous snakes in the camp. So snakes start crawling in the camp, biting people. They're dying. And then God tells Moses... Very unusual, which would be something you couldn't forget. Make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And these people aren't going to be able to come to the pole, probably. They're so sick. Just They just have to look to the pole, look to the pole, and they'll be healed. It's Old Testament events symbolizing a New Testament reality. You can't get there, but you can look. You can look away from yourself and say, I can't do it. All this stuff I've been trying to do, I can't. I've got to look away from myself, and I've got to look to somebody else for my healing, my salvation. Nicodemus, you can do that. Even in all of your pride, even in all of your hypocrisy, it's possible you can look away. You can look away from all the stuff you think you know and just trust in what Jesus says. Can you, can you flee to Christ for refuge? Or do you have to have some weight on what you do? And if you do, you never, you never can see Jesus. The way of salvation is never going to be self-improvement. Jesus on the cross is sucking all the poison of my sin out of my body and makes me born again. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to, to be lifted up that whosoever, the proudest person in this room, the poorest person in this room, the person who's prostituted themselves to everything in the world, all those people can be born again. Whoever believes in him, whoever looks away from themselves and looks to Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. What a, what a big invitation. 
And I wonder if you've received that invitation this morning. I wonder if you've come to the point where you've stopped pointing things out to God. You've stopped informing God in your prayers of all the things that's happening down here. Like he just needs to take care of it and somehow he doesn't see it. I wonder if you ceased your efforts of self-salvation. I wonder if you've looked away from yourself and looked to Christ. That's, that's one of the beautiful pictures is communion. I'm, I'm looking away. I'm, 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 it's not me. It's all about Jesus. I, it's all about his grace for my salvation. So we have a great moment here to take communion together. We do it as a community. And everyone who's looked away, everybody who's trusting in Jesus, we want you to come and be reminded it's Jesus who takes away, sucks the poison of your sin out of your soul. But if you don't believe that, I would just sit quietly in your seat and just think, what am I looking to? What's the answer to that question for you? What are you looking for? Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning, like many of your disciples and followers for the last 2,000 years, we come to this table and we remember this truth that holds us together, that makes us whole, that makes us born again, that you gave your blood and your body to suck the poison of sin out of our lives. And I pray that you would take these common elements and use them for uncommon means of grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers will come and usher you by row and you come and receive the grace of God.